guys want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 10 this morning. Um, my name is Kai Martin. I'm actually uh, one of the pastors at a church that Crosspoint Fellowship planted three years ago out in Rockwall and um, was a member of this church briefly before then. And so I know some of you guys, but just want to say thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. Um, we're going to look at the same text that we looked at last week and make some more observations about the warning Jesus gives the disciples. So just a quick paraphrase of what we're looking at here. Jesus takes his 72 disciples at the time, and it says he sends them out two by two to all these different villages, different towns, uh, to go minister, to go basically knock on people's doors, proclaim the peace of God upon them, um, be welcomed in, and minister and announce the coming kingdom. And so he sends them out to do this, and lo and behold, they actually have a lot of success. Um, you can imagine how nerve-wracking and difficult that would be, just walking up to someone's house in a town you don't live in, knocking on the door, knowing that you're going to be dependent on them for, for food and for shelter while you're there, uh, ministering on behalf of this new rabbi who came upon the scene, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. So they go out with, with I would imagine, some fear and trepidation and and they come back to Jesus rejoicing, saying, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in, their, in your name. And then Jesus says something really shocking to them. He says, yeah, you're right. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Yes, you guys have done some amazing things. Nevertheless, I tell you, don't rejoice in this, that the demons are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So let's read the text, and then we'll make some observations about that statement Jesus made. Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know that the kingdom of God has come near. So he sends them out with that message. They come back rejoicing. Pick it up in verse 17. It says this, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Verse 20, this is our focus this morning. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So just a quick recap of where we were last Sunday. And we looked at this idea that one of the reasons Jesus must have been correcting them for, for rejoicing, right? Because on the one hand, you would think, well, why would there be a correction? These guys came back having done what Jesus said. 
They were rejoicing in what God had done through them. They were glad about it. And yet Jesus offers kind of a, an adjustment or a correction to how they were, why and how they were rejoicing. And we looked at this idea that they were probably leveraging what the Lord had done through them to exalt themselves. That they, they didn't come back talking about how great Jesus was and his power. They came back talking about the great things they had done. And they were either were doing this or were at least flirting with this idea of boasting in themselves and what they brought to the table and what they had done for God rather than boasting in what God had done through them. And we asked, asked ourselves this question, when, I, when God works through me, God does things in me, God uses me to, to share the gospel or to bless and minister to others in this church, do I use that, do I twist that to exalt myself, either outwardly or inwardly? Or am I just glad that God would even give me the time of day to use me at all in his great plan and his work? Am I just honored that he would consider me part of this thing that he's doing? And we talked about two ways to remember, two ways to fight that temptation, or one to remember why God called us, that it's it's not that we were anything special, it's not that it's not that he needed us, but because he's gracious and kind. And then two, the idea of embracing obscurity, embracing the idea that God is impressive, Jesus does impressive things, so we don't have to be. It's okay for us not to be impressive, extraordinary Christians. It's okay, it's enough for us to be faithful to a God who is impressive and extraordinary. And so that was one reason that they were rebuked, I think, is that they were kind of leveraging what God did through them to exalt themselves But the second reason, and I think probably the more central, more key reason here for this rebuke, is that they allowed what God was doing through them, they allowed their works for God to overshadow their joy of their own salvation, right? That that Jesus basically says to them, it's, you know, yeah, it's good that you're excited about these things, but listen, don't rejoice in that. Just just rejoice that, that your name is written in heaven. In other words, your, your main joy ought to be that you're known by God. Like, that ought to be the main source of your joy in what you rejoice in. As I was looking at that, that passage and that, that idea of rejoicing primarily and just knowing that we are known and loved by our Heavenly Father, the passage in Revelation came to mind. So I want you to turn there with me. Revelation chapter 2. If you guys are familiar with the first few chapters of Revelation, you know it's basically Jesus going to these different churches and giving them kind of a report card. Here's some things you're doing well in. Here's some things you might need some work in. We're going to look at that report he gives to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. It says this, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned 
the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, let's just break this down real quick and look at what this church had going for them. It says that they, that they hated sin. Verse 6 right there, it says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't, we don't know a ton about the Nicolaitans, but what we do kind of pick up later on in this chapter is that they're associated with sexual immorality, leading people astray inside the church. And Jesus says, I, I love that you, you hate that sin just like I do. You have that going for you. So this is the church, we might say, a church that is very holy. This is a church that hated sin. This is a church that stood out, that they were separate, they were different from the world around them, which is something a lot of other churches did not do. You see, if you keep reading Revelation, they hated sin, they were holy, they were set apart, they were living lives that really honored and spoke to the value of God by how different they were from those around them. In verse 2 it says, I know your works, your toil, or patient endurance. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So you see in that a church that had very sound doctrine. They were doctrinally sound. Think of them as people who could, they could sniff out heresy from a mile away, right? I mean, these were, these were students. These were maybe not scholars, but folks who knew the scriptures, knew the difference in good and bad teaching, sound and unsound doctrine, could call it out and wouldn't put up with it. That if someone were to be teaching that, it would be corrected or dealt with or they would be sent on somewhere else. Jesus says that's good. And then, perhaps most importantly, they were diligent. Verse 3 says this, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake that you have not grown weary. That these guys are enduring, they're faithful, they're diligent. I imagine, I imagine a group of people, a church who's, who really values the disciplines, right? That most of the people in this body are reading the scripture daily, who are attending worship on a regular basis, who are devoted to prayer. They're devoted, they're diligent. And yet he says he has this against them, that they don't have the love they had at first. Some of your Bibles may say you've lost your first love. And if we look at what that must mean, that really the only thing left is, is the idea of affection. That they, their works, their actions, right? 1 John 5.3 says that for this is the love of God that we obey his commandments. Well, they, they were doing that. They were, they were obeying his commandments very dutifully, right? So it's not that they were not loving God and how they lived. It's, it's that he's pointing this idea that you've lost the love, the affection that you had for me at the beginning, I think they'd become more impressed by their own holiness than God's holiness. But they were so focused on what they'd done for God, they'd lost sight of what God had done for them in the gospel. And it's such a similar warning that Jesus gives the disciples in Luke chapter 10 that almost like this, be careful guys, you're headed down this path, you're headed down this path where you're going to be so, so fired up and so impressed by how good you are and the things you're doing for my kingdom that you're rushing past and forgetting 
the fact that I saved you. You're going to rush past and forget this, how big it is and how significant it is that you are known by God in heaven. And he doesn't want them to make that mistake. I think sometimes we, we're, quick to, we're quick to recognize someone who maybe has a surplus of affection with no diligence, right? I remember... You see it in younger younger generation, especially uh, high school, college students, that maybe maybe they express really deep, really emotional affection for God. They have a surplus of affection and emotion in their relationship with God, but with no diligence. And we see that as unhealthy. But would we stop this morning and consider that it is equally unhealthy to have a surplus of diligence with no affection? I think that's what you had in this church, a surplus of diligence with no affection. I think the older we get, the more tempting it becomes to fit that category. In fact, I think we often shy away from language that's affectionate as it relates to God. You know? It's funny when you read when you read certain men, especially I don't know you guys, a lot of you guys have the Valley of Vision. Some of you guys read that or um, it's been read here from the pulpit several times. It's funny that the, some of the language is so affectionate that it almost makes you uncomfortable. Not almost, it does. I was, uh, this one isn't from Valley of Vision, but I was reading a, an article by John Piper once. And it was talking about preparing your heart for worship on Sunday mornings. And he was just giving some tips on before you come to worship service on Sundays, how to really prepare your heart to engage the Lord well. And he said, find a delicious portion of scripture to read. Has anyone ever described your Bible as delicious before? Anybody? Right? But he's not, he's not putting on a show. He's just, just a man who is deeply affectionate about who the Lord is and his love for him and just says, find some delicious passage of scripture to read. If you've ever seen Piper, he's probably doing this while he says it too. A delicious passage. Found a couple quotes from this Valley of Vision that says this. With thee my heart shall bloom with fragrance. I'm going to add that to the list of something no one in this room has probably said before. With God my heart shall bloom with fragrance. Here's a good one for you. It's just someone's prayer crying out to God. Thou fairest, greatest, first of all objects, my heart admires, adores, and loves thee. For my little cup is as full as it can be. I love thee above the powers of language to express. It's funny, those things make us kind of uncomfortable, but they also, they also challenge us, don't they? Hopefully they challenge us to ask, am I... Do I have that kind of affection for my Heavenly Father? Do I have that kind of love? Am I stirred in the way that these men are stirred when they write these things? Because if we're real honest, I think some of us would look at that and kind of scoff at it. Some of us might even look at that and think that that seems kind of feminine. Maybe it seems kind of feminine to you to, to think of God as your little cup being as full as it can be. 
and admiring and adoring and being, him being the fairest and greatest of all objects. Maybe that doesn't sound very manly to you. And I would challenge you with this idea that most, the most affectionate language we have about God in our Bibles was written by the guy who slew Goliath. Right? I mean, if you look at the Psalms, they're, they're riddled with this. This deep, emotional, talking about pleasure and joy and satisfaction. And David's saying he wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of his life. This is the guy that killed giants. It's not a lack of being, being masculine that we're talking about here. And I think sometimes we think we've graduated from this. I think sometimes when we hear people talking about their emotions and their affections for the Lord, and we, we kind of think, yeah, I remember back before I really grew up that, and became more mature and established in my doctrine, I remember being real affectionate and emotional about the Lord like that. Man, God help us. If our maturity means we outgrow affection for the Lord, God help us. So how do we keep that? How do we, how do we heed Jesus' warning to the disciples of, of rejoice that your names are written in heaven and to, to Jesus' warning to the church in Revelation to don't lose your first love, don't drift from the love you had at first. How do we maintain and keep our affection for the Lord? I'm just going to give you two things. One is is similar to last week. I think it's remembering where we came from. It's remembering that God didn't need us. Acts 17 says this, "The, The Lord is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. That God didn't need us, we needed him. Jesus said, if, 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 you don't, if you don't declare the greatness of God, that the very rocks will cry out, right? That God does not need you and I to declare his praise. He doesn't need you and I to build his church, that he chooses to use us because of his love and kindness. There's a guy named William Temple who said it this way. He said, the only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. The only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. Guys, I think the reason that's significant is when you, when you forget that you bring nothing to the table, you forget the gospel, right? It's that simple. When we forget that, that we brought nothing to the table, that we didn't we weren't big contributors to this work Jesus was doing, but that he chose to use us not because of who we were, but despite who we were. When we forget that, we forget how great his love is. We forget the gospel. Part of remembering where we came from is remembering that we were not seeking God. And Paul actually encourages this church in Ephesians to remember that. He says, he says would you think back and remember the time that you weren't seeking God. And he's doing that in a way to help them almost exercise this minds down this path of stepping back and remembering how wicked and selfish they were so that they can understand how great God's love was to them despite where they were. Ephesians 2.12 says it this way. Paul says, Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope and without God in the world. Early in that chapter, he says, Remember that you were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, not seeking God, not pleasing him, not searching out a relationship with him, and yet he came, called you, and found you by his initiative. So it's remembering where we came from, and then it's, it's also remembering God's love for us in that movement, that, that knowing that where we came from is a spot of that God didn't need us, that we weren't seeking him, and despite that, his great love pursued us and made us his children, despite our lack of interest, despite our being self-absorbed. Um, Greg Fields will, where's Greg? You'll appreciate this. My wife, uh, my wife grew up Presbyterian, and whenever we go to, in, she lives in Missouri, or she lives with me now in, in Texas, but she, uh, she used to live in Missouri. But um, yeah, so we would go up there um, during holidays and stuff and visit her, and we attend worship with them at this church, which is Presbyterian. And they did something there, first few times I was there, um, they do it every week. But I noticed it the first few times I was there because it, it was a new kind of movement, a new uh, piece of liturgy for me that I'd never seen before called confession and pardon. And what they would do is the, the pastor would get up and say, you know, okay, it's time for confession and pardon. Spend some time confessing your sins to the Lord. Man, and everyone would just drop their heads and just sit there in dead silence. And sometimes he'd let it last for two or three minutes. Sometimes he'd let it go for four or five. But those four or five minutes felt like about 50, you know, when it's just dead silence. In fact, we're going to try it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but they would just sit there in just dead silence. And I remember the first, I don't know, three, four, five times I saw that thinking, what a drag, man. Like, like I can't believe they're doing this. Like, this is, this is depressing and defeating. And like, I, like it's, I want to just stand up and go, hey, guys, I think we all know we've sinned. Right? I mean, we have all agreed to that. Can we just move on to the gospel, right? Can we just talk about that Jesus has forgiven us? But what I realized is that it's a, they were doing this. They were walking out Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says, remember where you came from. Just take a few minutes and remember that you weren't seeking God yesterday, much less before you, you came to know him, that Sit for a minute and consider how much you truly need his grace. We would sit there for several minutes of silence just thinking on how we failed, which again, by itself seems like a horrible thing to do, right? But then the the pastor would get up and say, now everyone lift your heads. And then he would read some text about God's forgiveness and just proclaim, look, you are forgiven. Not because I said so, because God said so. You're forgiven. And I love that movement. I love that exercise of of remembering where we came from and embracing or running to God in forgiveness. I'm going to read a quick excerpt out of this book for you guys, Valley of Vision. It says this. He says, But oh, how I mourn my sin in gratitude vileness, the days that add to my guilt, the scenes that witness my offending tongue. All things in heaven, earth, around, within, without, condemn me. The sun which sees my misdeeds. The darkness which is light to thee. The cruel accuser who justly charges me. The good angels 
who have been provoked to leave me. Thy countenance which scans my secret sins. Thy righteous, thy righteous law, thy holy word, my sin-soiled conscience, my private and public life, my neighbors, myself, all, all write dark things against me. I deny them not. Frame no excuse, but confess, Father, I have sinned. So, but look how he runs to the gospel. Yet still I live and fly, repenting to thy outstretched arms. Thou will not cast me off, for Jesus brings me near. Thou will not condemn me, for he died in my stead. Thou will not mark my mountain of sin, for he leveled it all. In his beauty covers my deformities. Man. That we would go through that motion. Remembering our sin, but then remembering, flying to him, knowing what Jesus has done on the cross, knowing that God sees all of it. He sees all the sin that we see in ourselves and more, and yet he loves us and wants to know us. I was reading a, I was reading a book to my kids. I'm not sure if anyone's read this. Anyone read the Wing Feather series? Any hands? All right, well, this is going to go over really well. Um, so I'll have to explain it to you a little bit. Um, it's a story, it's kind of a, it's a fantasy fiction story um, about this kid named Janner who um, he and his family are like heirs to this throne, um, to, to this uh, kingdom. So they have like this special uh, place in the world. And Janner is a 12-year-old boy. And it's a story of him coming of age. And early on, he's just a very, very selfish kid, only thinks about himself. And as the story goes on, he becomes more selfless, really learns what, that to be a man is to look out for others and not just your own interests, to lay yourself aside. So the whole story is kind of, it's kind of his, his coming of age, his growth, his maturity in that. And then it's, it's kind of like Narnia where there's a, it's, it's a symbolic of, of Christianity. And so um, there's, this, there's this place called the Faint of Fire where, where he's able, he and his brother and sister are able to go and meet with who they call the maker, which is God. But that's why they call him the maker. Um, so because he made everything like God did. And so um, they call him the maker. And so... He's never really encountered the maker before. He, he believes that the maker exists, that he's real, but he's never had any sort of encounter with him personally. Um, and it's just this, this point in the, near the end of the book where he finally encounters the maker in this, this place, the faint of fire, and, and it writes his inner, his, kind of his inner dialogue with himself about what he's feeling in that moment. And I just want to read through it with you. It's, hopefully it'll, you'll relate to this as he as he sees his sin and his selfishness um, in light of who God is. And it says, Jenner understood something about his own heart. He was deeply, blatantly selfish in so many situations. He had unleashed his frustration at the maker. He'd been thinking more of himself than anyone or anything else. Listen to this. Even in the performance of his duties, he thought mainly of his own dutifulness. In his courageous moments, he thought about his courage. 
Only in his pain and despair did he turn his attention to the maker. And then it was only to demand answers or outcomes. The light from the fire illuminated his heart and showed him who he really was. A weak, petty young man. Even in that realization, he recognized his selfishness. Because he was thinking not of the grace the maker had shown him, was showing him, but of his own weakness and pettiness. There was no way out. There was no way out. How long has it been since you felt that, church? Since you considered your, your sin thoroughly enough to go, there's no way out. No matter where I turn, no matter how I view myself, I, I am to my core, there's part of me that's, that's selfish in everything I do. And then this is the moment where he realizes that the maker sees that and still loves him. And it says this, he heard a voice that said, be still. And a great love enveloped him, and he thought of his father's bear-like embrace. Only now, he knew those arms of his father were but a shadow of the bright love that beat the world's heart and held him now, as they always had, with an inescapable, indescribable tenderness. Be still. The voice repeated the words again and again, like a beating heart, until Janner was at last able to obey and to rest. Rest. There in the light of the faint of fire, Janner Wingfeather encountered, absorbed an abiding peace that he would never forget. All the days of his life, he was still and he was loved. One of the reasons I love that is because it compares God's love to that of a father. J.I. Packer um, read a quote by him a while back that, that said this. It says, um, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out he, how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers, his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And I would ask you that, church, like, how much do you, what about you? How much do you make, how much does it mean to you the thought that God in heaven is your Father? He is your Father. As your father, he is rich. Our dad is immeasurably wealthy. I think it's funny, and I compare these things to me being a dad and my kids, and man, my, my kids think I am loaded. I don't know about you guys, but like Jackson, we give him, you know, some allowance, and I think he's amassed somewhere of, you know, north of 60, shy of 80, you know, 80 seems high. Um, but he is amassed that much wealth, and it's funny because, you know, one day we may go to this grocery store, and he kind of sees that we spend over a hundred bucks here, and then we'll go do something else and spend 60 bucks there, and he's just like, my gosh, dad, how much money do you have, you know? I mean, to him, that just seems like we are just, we are just loaded, you know? 
Do you know that your dad owns? Owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is loaded. His riches are immeasurable. You will never tap or understand his resources. They are unlimited. I remember being a high school student. My dad, uh, my dad drove like I think three trucks the whole time. Eighteen years I was I was living there. Um, his second truck was it was an old blue Dodge. And man, that thing he was a farmer and he had beat the tar out of that thing. There were like. You know, like a farmers, when they beat up their trucks, they don't do anything about it, right? Like a hole gets knocked in, and well, there's just a hole there now, right? And that's, that's all there is to it. Um, and so, I mean, the inside of it was like, you know, coffee and spit cups had spilled, and just like, it was just nasty. And that thing was like, but, but he drove it. When I turned 16, I got this, this, little, this little blue car. We called it Putter. It was a little Ford Escort, and Putter was a good description of it. So I had Putter, and... Um, for a couple years, then when I was 18, my senior year, my dad, um, my dad got a new truck. I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, it's kind of about time. The thing was kind of embarrassing. And I was always real infatuated by the new Dodge model. You remember like the late 90s Dodge pickup that had like the honeycomb uh, pattern in the grills? Like the first time they come up with that, man, those things look sharp. So he got him one of those. He drove that thing for about two weeks to and from work. And then he decided, you know, I'm just, I'm going to let Kai drive that. So he started driving putter, <laughs> this little blue Ford Escort, <laughs> to and from work to do everything he needed. He only just got the truck when, when, when he, he took the truck when he needed it. But I thought about that and how, you know, to me, that, that truck seemed like kind of a rich thing that my dad had. But he stepped back and in some ways kind of became poor that I might become rich. Sound familiar? And this is about Jesus, not necessarily our Father, but it still relates. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Our dad is immeasurably wealthy, and yet he sent his one and only son to become poor, that we might share in his wealth and become rich. Our God is strong. Again, as a dad, it's funny the things that impress your kids, you know. My daughter, Eden, you know, she's four. She'll try to, like, pour her own milk, and she can't do it with a gallon. And I'll just, like, I'll walk in from the store with, like, one in each hand, and she's just like, Dad, how are you doing that? You know, she's just baffled that I can just carry those jugs of milk so easily. I mean, she's very, very, very impressed with my strength, even more so than most of my peers. (laughs) If you can believe that. To her, what seems like a ridiculous amount of weight is nothing to me. Scripture says that to God, the nations, think about the nations, the the continents, all the people that live on them, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and dust on the scales because our God is so strong. Man, God is patient. My kids are really impressed by how rich and strong I am, but they are not impressed by my patience. funny how we get so impatient with our kids. I've told them that they've been making the same mistake again and again and again. We get frustrated. We get impatient. 
We do the same thing with God, and he is so unbelievably patient with us. God is compassionate. Think about my, my one-year-old, Anna Jane. Man, when she cries over some of the silliest things, you know, like someone will walk in the door she doesn't know, she gets scared, and, and, and she cries because it's just like an unfamiliar person. And in those moments, I don't typically get really upset at her, right? I mean, when your kids cry over things that you probably wouldn't cry about, as a parent, you don't get, you don't get upset at them. You, you have compassion because you understand their weakness and who they are. Psalm 103 says this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord knows or shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Do you guys know that God is compassionate towards your struggles? I've wrestled with this. Like, I was a time in my life about three years ago when I was having a ton of struggles and just not in a good spot. And to compound my struggles, I just imagined that God was in the heavens looking down at the things I was struggling with and torn up over and stressed out about it, going, Grow up, man. Kai, get it together. The gospel's enough for you, right? Why is this so hard? Do you know that God is compassionate towards our struggles? Peter says, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Don't we want to know the struggles our kids are having? If you're a parent and your kids are having struggles that, that may seem petty to anyone else, but you as a parent, you want to know, and you want them to bring those to you. And yet sometimes, I think when we approach God, we think, I didn't care about that. That's a small deal. That's, that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. No. You think that you as a parent love your kids better than God loves us as our father? No. Cast all your anxieties on him. Anything that troubles your heart, he wants you to bring that to him so that he can be there for you and walk with you through those things. God is tender. Here again, an affectionate, like this idea of Really understanding the love of God, feeling like a, a hug or a warm embrace from a father. If, that, if that's too gushy or too feminine for you, I would challenge you of whether or not you truly know the tenderness of your heavenly father. Lastly, he is, he is excited about us. Listen to this, guys. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with singing. Something that never gets old as a dad is when you walk in the door and like a three-year-old girl is like, Daddy's home! And it's like she hasn't seen you in years. And you just went out to the garage, right, to like get, get a tool. But seriously, you're gone for like a couple hours and there's just like this overwhelming, oh my gosh, look, Dad's here, Right? That she's just she's ready to burst out into song. She's so excited to see you. And it, it's hard to imagine. It really is. But like, do you know that that's how God feels about us? Legitimately. That he exults over us with singing. That he is crazy about us. He rejoices over us. Rejoices with gladness. Why? <laughs> Why? 
why in the world would God rejoice over us as sinners, defiant, stubborn, impatient sinners? Why would he rejoice over us? If you really hear that and you really understand your sin, you can't help but ask that question. But the answer is that because we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Because God is not crazy about our sin. He's not in love with our sin and the bad things we have, the things that are offensive to him. But the reality is this, that when 2,000 years ago Jesus came to earth, God laid upon him all the bad things we had done and punished him, treated Jesus as though Jesus had done all the bad things we had done so that he might treat us and see us and view us just as if we had lived Jesus' life. Imagine the love you think that God the Father has for God the Son. How great and rich and deep and true and affectionate that must be. You have been given that place. Because Jesus took your place, you are granted the right to be a son or daughter of this great God. Fully known and yet fully loved. But that love is reserved only for those who are believing and trusting in Jesus. John 1.12 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And I just want to close with this, that if, if you're in this room and you don't know the love of God as a father that way, if this sounds weird and foreign to you, this, this affection, this emotion we're describing Know that God is not far from each one of us. That you can know the love of God as your heavenly father who fully knows everything about you and yet is fully pleased with you by believing and trusting that Jesus came to earth, was put to death for you and I's sins, was punished for the bad things you and I did so that we might switch places with Jesus, that he would get our sin and we would gain his standing with God as a beloved son or daughter who'd never done anything wrong. And if you don't know that, if you don't know rest secure, if you, don't, if you can't be still in the presence of God and rest in the security of his love for you as your heavenly father, man, please, please talk to someone about that. He is not far off. Let's pray.